All right, Salt City, I'm Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I wasn't going to acknowledge it, but I spilled a little bit of coffee on my white shirt right before I came up here. And I wasn't sure if the lights were going to expose it or blot it out, but I can see it. So I'm just acknowledging it to you guys in case you can see it too. It's a bummer. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm Jordan. Flip to Ephesians 5, please. Second half of Ephesians 5. As you're flipping there, quick story from my time early in ministry. I was doing college ministry. And we would take a spring break trip every year to southern Texas, to this kind of beautiful camp down there. And it was uh, some incredible memories from that time. Uh, but the, the trip was amazing, surrounded by the two nightmares that were the 16-hour bus trip down there. Which, uh, yeah, woo, okay, cool. Um, somebody likes 16-hour bus trips over here. Uh, but at first, like the charter bus rolls up and at least it's like, oh, at least this isn't a school bus. It's a charter bus. This will be comfortable. About an hour in, it's like, nope, this is still terrible. And uh, so I have this experience of 16 hours on this bus with college students that just refuse to sleep on spring break for inexplicable reasons. And we get down there and we're like, I, I remember this one specific year, everybody's getting out of the bus and everybody's hungry, everybody's tired, and people are just kind of like grumbling and frustrated. And I just was watching everybody sort of not enjoying the fact that we're on spring break together. And I just said, everybody stop. And then they stopped and looked at me and I was like, put your bags down. And they're like, kind of grumbling, like, okay, I guess I'll do this, put the bags down. And it's like, look up. And we all just looked up at the stars with no light pollution and saw the beauty. And it immediately like changed the whole mood of the trip. And I want to have a moment like that together today. Here's what I mean. This text that we're looking at, um, at times can be seen as controversial. And it can kind of cause some like grumbling and complaining and rumbling around it. But I think this is one of the most beautiful gospel descriptions in the entire Bible. And I, I want to acknowledge some of the things that are, that are hard with this text. I, I think some of the ways that we tend to misunderstand it or maybe that it's been misused. And I want to talk through those and kind of explain them so that then we can have what I think is the appropriate reaction to something like this, which is just wonder. Just to be amazed at the goodness of who God is and the relationship that he offers to us. So this text is about marriage. So, so quickly, I just want to acknowledge to you, why should you listen in if you are not married? So some of you will eventually get married. That's one reason. But I think a more important reason is this text explains the character of God. It, as, as you look at it, as you listen in, you're going to learn about what God is like and about the type of relationship that he wants to have with you. But also, I think you should listen in because this teaches about what it means to live as a Christian. Even though this is specifically applied to marriage, the principles are broadly applicable to every area of life as a Christian. All right, so let's, let's get into this. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I'm going to keep reading, okay? I'm going to read this whole section to you in a second, but I want to give you a framework to understand the text. So verse 21 there is the transition point of Ephesians chapter 5. 
So last week we talked about sort of Christian living, and it summarizes that Christian living as submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then he's going to apply that principle specifically to marriage. So this is the principle that we're talking about today, is what it means to be married as a Christian is to have the husband and the wife engaging in mutual submission to one another. Submission being to go down instead of up. Instead of elevating yourself and your needs and using the other person to try to provide for those needs, you lower yourself to elevate the other person. It's a competition towards the bottom, not towards the top, for the benefit of the other person. And the reason we do that is as an act of worship to Jesus Christ. You see that out of reverence for Christ. So the principle is mutual submission from the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. Now, he is going to explain some specific ways that the wife does that or that the husband does that. And I think this is important. He's about to teach us to submit to one another in love, but he's going to give us distinctions in how we do that based on gender. So he's teaching that there's a difference between husbands and wife that was designed by God himself, grounded in pre-fall creation as a way of uniquely displaying the character of God to the world. And that if we embrace those differences of gendered responsibility and love towards one another in marriage, it will create unity that is supernatural in a representation of Christ. Unity through diversity of design. Gender is not a social construct, but is a gift by God based on his design of the world. All right, so that's the framework. Now let's just read the text. If you'd look at it with me, verse 21, Ephesians 5, 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, we're going to unpack some of the details here, but I first want to acknowledge that this text is uncomfortable for some of us. It uses the word submission, which isn't exactly a popular term in our culture. And it's also talking about gender not as a social construct, but as something grounded in creation, which is not a popular modern idea. 
And so I think there can be some misunderstandings surrounding this text and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And I want to try to explain those and unpack those. But I also think that this text has been misused. And it's been used in a way that is patriarchal and derogatory towards women. I think not just by individuals, but at times by the church. Or I I think at times Christians have adopted this kind of 1950s American subculture of gender roles and then read it back into the Bible and claimed that it is the Bible based on gender stereotypes. And that's not the Bible. Um, And I, I hate that the beauty of Scripture can be marred like that. And I want to say, if you've been hurt by that, if, if you've been offended by that, I, I just want to say, I'm sorry. It, it's not okay. It's not an okay use of Scripture. And it's not what I want to do. But I think it's also important to realize that those things are not the fault of the Bible. I, I think there can be some misplaced blame here where we're blaming the Bible for the sin of people, which would be kind of like blaming the car in a drunk driving accident. It's not the car's fault. The car is a beneficial thing when used rightly. It's the fault of the person who used it in a destructive fashion. And so people, yes, throughout history have used the Bible in a destructive fashion. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with the Bible. It means there's sin in the world, which the Bible talks about. And so I want to look at the original context and figure out how this would have landed in the ears and hearts of the original audience. And the reason I want to do that is is not to write off whole sections of the Bible as sort of just cultural. That's never an appropriate way to interpret the Bible. That's not why we look at cultural context, but actually for the exact opposite reason. I want to try to find the timeless principles and figure out how to apply them appropriately in modern culture, which is the reason why we look at context. It's to find the meaning of the text, not to dismiss it as just cultural. So let's look at Ephesus. So Ephesus, this is written to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was this metropolis at the time that had a lot of similar ideologies that are kind of going on modernly in culture as well. Now, some of what was happening here is that Rome was the dominant culture at the time, along with this sort of Jewish uh, subculture that the Bible is addressing. And both of those cultures were highly patriarchal cultures, unfortunately. There was different social and sexual expectations for men than there were for women. But also there's something else going on at this time. There's this counter movement happening that's pushing back against this patriarchy, which is a really good thing on the whole, but it was being done in kind of this this sinful way where it was largely in the name of worshiping the local cult deity Artemis. And so it was taking on the, the sinful traits of the patriarchy and pushing back on it, sin kind of against sin. And, and then Rome was doubling down on their patriarchy and trying to, to push down this movement. And so there was this polarization and this fighting and bickering surrounding gender and this growing animosity between men and women. And it's into that moment that God writes Ephesians 5. And he gives this radically others-oriented view of marriage and of gender. 
And I think this is what's happening in Ephesians 5. I, I think Paul is applying the teachings of Jesus to gender. So in, in the sermon and into marriage, so in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about how the pinnacle Christian ethic is self-sacrificial love. That not only should you love your neighbor, but you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that regardless of what happens to you, your response as a Christian is others-oriented <clears throat> love. And he's applying that here to marriage. And he's saying Christian marriage is not about self-fulfillment. It's about self-denial for the benefit of your spouse, which is the exact opposite of what marriage has been viewed throughout history and what it's viewed in our culture. We view marriage as a means to our own happiness, but Paul here is saying that it's a means to the benefit of your spouse. And if we receive this teaching or not is dependent on if we actually believe what Jesus said, that to lose your life is to gain your life. That the way to experience life and life to the full that he came to bring is through devoting your life to others and lowering yourself just like he did. So there's, there's something in psychology called paradoxical intention, okay? Here, here's kind of the concept that there's things in life, the worst possible way to get what you want is by directly pursuing it, but you have to get at it in indirect routes, okay? So if you can't sleep, one of the worst possible ways that you can fall asleep is by trying really hard to sleep, Okay, I've experienced this. You guys have experienced this. You lay there in your bed, eyes wide open. Go to sleep. It's getting late. Oh, no, I have to get up early. I'm going to be tired, right? And now you're not sleeping for like the whole night. So, so what do you have to do? You have to count sheep. I've always been confused by this. Why are we counting sheep? I don't know why it's sheep, but it's actually founded in psychology, this idea that the way to sleep is to distract yourself from the intentional pursuit of sleep and to pursue something else, and you actually end up sleeping. Okay. At least in theory, you end up sleeping. Uh, one of the worst ways for you to experience happiness and fulfillment in marriage is by you making your marriage about your happiness and your fulfillment. Jesus did not design it that way. The best way for you to experience a full and rich marriage is through the pursuit of the joy of your spouse, giving up your life and you will find it. And in order to teach this, Paul uses something that was called the household codes, okay? So this was something that the original uh, audience would have all been familiar with. It was made famous by Aristotle. And, and there were these, these concepts primarily addressed to men about how you should handle your relationships in marriage with your kids and with your household servants. That's why you're going to see those three categories in Ephesians 5 and in Ephesians 6 is because he's quoting these popular household codes. Now, these codes were addressed to men, assuming him as the ruling unilateral authority who was supposed to keep his household in line through domineering power. Kind of rule with an iron fist was the common thinking of the day advocated by Aristotle and by Rome. But Paul starts here by using their familiar sayings. So as he starts into these household codes, it's like they're rehearsing them along in their heads. It's like if I said, I pledge allegiance to the flag, you could likely kind of keep going in that. It's a, it's a common ideology. But as they're just starting to recite it in their heads, he completely flips it on its head and says the exact opposite thing. 
Instead of saying, husbands, rule and dominate your home because your wife and kids are less dignified than you, as Aristotle taught, he says, husbands, love your wives and give yourself up for her the way that Jesus gave himself up for you. Give up your rights and your desires to serve and bless the way that Jesus did. So Paul is taking the husband out of the center of this household code and replacing him with Jesus Christ, which would have been deeply offensive to the men at the time. They would have been thinking, oh, I should lead my family and I have authority in these things. Yeah, of course, that's obvious. But when they hear and give up your rights and your privilege and your power for the benefit of your wife, they're going, no way. Like, I'm out. I'm not in on Christianity if that's what you're asking me to do. It was a deeply countercultural instruction on self-sacrifice and the dignity of marriage and the dignity of women. So let's look into this. What does he say to husbands? Verse 25, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And again, even if you are not a husband, listen in, these principles still apply. So most men want to get married because they think it will improve their lives. Jesus wants you to get married so that you will lose your life, so that you will die to yourself for the benefit of your spouse just like he died for you. Husbands, are you primarily givers or primarily takers in your marriage? Even just very practically, like do you do more and serve more for your spouse than she does for you? And if you still feel good, how would your wife answer the question? Your wife, is she thriving? If not, are are you brokenhearted about that? Are you sad about that, the way that Jesus is sad when you're not thriving and pursues your flourishing? Are you doing everything you can to lift her up and to help, you, or help her? If, if she is thriving, is it largely because of you or is it in spite of you? Husbands, are you being a symbol of Christ on earth? Because that's what this is saying, is through the way you live, you demonstrate the character of Jesus Christ to the world. So let's just put that into like a hypothetical scenario. Imagine there's someone who has no familiarity with God or with Christianity. They've never read the Bible. Uh, They don't know the story of, of Jesus. They don't even have a concept of God. And they're asking kind of how can they learn about what God is like, what his character is like. Let's just say I took that person and I had them watch your life for a week, the way that you relate to your wife. What would they conclude about what God is like? Would they think that God is domineering and selfish? Would they think that God is sort of distant and uninvolved? Would they find him to be loving or hateful, critical? What would they conclude about God? Now, I think this text should be convicting to all of us. But it's also not meant to be discouraging. Remember last week that it, they talked about the, the, the powerful spirit of God who rose Jesus from the dead is alive and well in you, which means that you can do things that you weren't capable of doing before. So it's not hopeless, but we should see the reality of what we're called to as husbands. Look at this in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does for the church. So this is saying you should be so united with your wife that it's an instinct for you to care for her, to nourish her and cherish her, to take care of her the way you take care of your own body. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. When you're hurt, you, you take care of that, right? The instinct should be to do the same for your spouse because you're so united with her. Husbands, how accurately could you describe the emotional, physical, and spiritual needs of your wife? I do not have the gift of observation. In almost any category of life, I'm oblivious, okay? So marriage and raising children has been a little bit of a challenge for me. Um, an illustration of this, in particular when my wife got pregnant for the first time, it was a steep learning curve on how to take care of a pregnant wife. Some of you have experienced this, okay? We took a trip to Seattle, and Jessamy was with some friends, and, and Jessamy was, was pregnant, not like super pregnant, but pregnant, okay? And so we uh, saw this overlook of the ocean, and I decided that we were going to take a hike down to the ocean. And going down was totally fine. Uh, and this is the context how I ended up pushing my wife up a giant hill in Seattle. <laughs> okay, so, so we climb down to the ocean, and we get down there, and it's great, but then it's time to go back up, and we don't know exactly how to get back up. There's like several trails, and we're trying to figure it out on the map. We don't remember exactly how we got down there, so I think, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to take care of, of my pregnant wife, and so I'm going to figure out where we're supposed to go. And so I was walking out like in front of her and checking out the different trails and looking at the maps and trying to figure out which way. And then I like made my decision. I'm like, I think it's up this way. And so I start talking to her. I'm like, hey, Jessamy, it's up this way to the left, and then we'll go this way, and we'll find the car. Are you with? And I just hear nothing. That's because Jessamy was a long way back on the trail struggling to breathe. I hadn't really even noticed it. So I go running back, and I'm like, okay, what do you need? And she's like, I think I need you to push me. Like, all right, so here we go. So I get behind her and I push her all the way up the hill. And as people are walking down, they just see just me and that kind of would pop out like, hey, you know, and kind of keep pushing. I think a lot of us think about leadership and initiative in our families and in our marriages in kind of that first sense. Where it's like we get out in front of our wife and our family or whatever, and we say, come on, this way, like, follow me, keep up. But leadership is not as much about being out in front and seeing some, some of your vision for your life. It's seeing your wife and responding to her needs, being connected to her. And yeah, is it a little bit harder? Yeah, of course. It's a little bit heavier to carry someone else's burdens, but it's fulfilling and it's beautiful and it's what Jesus did so be with her, supporting her and helping her, walking beside her, not out in front saying, come on, what are you doing? Jessamy recently told me that lately she's felt more criticized by me than encouraged by me, which is just a failure of my role in her life and in my family. It's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is like. It's this temptation to say, come on, like this is what we're doing. Keep up. That's not the type of leadership that he's talking about. I want to encourage you, husbands, don't be the starter of conflicts through your criticism. Be the ender of them through your forgiveness and your asking of forgiveness. If you want to lead, if you want to initiate in your relationship, be the first to ask for and offer forgiveness. Look, even if 
you were 90% right in a situation, apologize for the 10%. Make amends. End conflicts for the benefit of your marriage. Be intentional with the needs of your wife. A few practices that you could put in place for this. Maybe a weekly family meeting. For us, this is a huge deal where we look back on the previous week and go, what went well, what didn't go well, and then look forward so that we're unified on that. One question you could ask in this is, what do you need from me? And then don't talk, just listen, and then follow through that week. Another practice, set up a weekly date night or a bi-weekly or even a monthly, right? But just periodic date nights. Don't stop dating your wife. And, and make it happen. Put it on the calendar. Find a babysitter. Find the money. Do what you need to do. She's worth it. Pursue her. Okay, wives. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay. So the word submit means to respect. That's how he summarizes it in verse 33. If you look at that, it's a summary of what he said so far. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So hopefully that's just inherently obvious that that is a good thing to do in your marriage with somebody that you've tied your life to is to respect them. Now look at the reasoning for that found in verse 23. So he says, wives, submit to your husbands for, or that the word for means because. So he's going to give the reason why the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So while both husband and wife mutually submit to one another, the, the reason for this unique submission of the wife is the headship of the husband according to scripture, that there's a certain level of authority there. Now, if that's challenging for you, if that's hard for you, there could be a couple possible reasons. So, so the first is that doesn't align with modern concepts of gender and love. But I just want to point out, this text is not unclear. It's, it's not hard to see what it, it's saying, the interpretation is not that debatable. You can just read it, and it's very obvious what it's saying. It's just unpopular modernly. But being unpopular doesn't make it untrue, and it doesn't make it bad. So remember last week, we talked about uh, sources of truth, external authority versus internal authority. Our instincts and our cultural instincts are to look inside to try to find truth, and as we look inside, whatever our instincts are, if something contradicts that, we think that that thing is wrong. But what we believe as Christians is that the Bible is the authority for all of us, that all of us put ourselves under, and that it's leading us to the good life. And so I want to encourage you to see just the clear teachings of Scripture and to believe God. Okay, a, a second reason why this could be challenging for you is fear. So I think there can be fear in this idea because of all of our negative assumptions about authority, and for a lot of you, negative experiences with authority, and, and this assumption that if there's a distinction in gender, that it's a distinction in equality, which just clearly is not true based on scripture in the life of Jesus. 
But, but there can be this concern that if you were to follow this teaching, your husband would either be a tyrant or a disappointment. Either too much or too little, not enough. But remember who is asking you to do this. It's Jesus Christ himself who offered up his life for you, who came to get you because he delighted in you so much. Zephaniah 3 says he rejoices over you with singing. He quiets you with his love. He's given everything he has for your benefit and for your good. He is trustworthy. He's proven that in his character. And so when he speaks this into your life, it's because he loves you, not because he hates you. And so trust him. And to do a seemingly scary thing like trust and respect, to be vulnerable with a broken, sinful man is difficult, but it's beautiful because it's a demonstration of your trust in Christ. You are safe in Jesus Christ, who is your ultimate authority. And that is strength and courage, not weakness. Jackie O'Perry, who I really respect, her, her life and her writings, her work, talks about this idea like this. It's not that God has called me to submit to a man because I'm just this weak-willed, brittle-backed woman, but rather it's a way for me to mimic God. It's a way for me to live a life of service. Submission is a good thing. Even Christ did it, and he's God. He submitted to the Father, so how can I say I am above that? So let's look at how to apply this concept. Now, it would be a dumb idea for, my, for me to try to present to you a formula for like what this looks like in the life of your marriage. I think that's actually unhelpful. Um, and I think it can promote sort of stereotyping. My, my wife busts up all kinds of gender stereotypes and I love that about her. She's a scientist. She's handy around the house. She leads in our, in our finances because she's really good at it. So I think at times when you get overly prescriptive of how this works, it can promote kind of stereotyping. I, I'm not interested in that. I think you can apply this by the Spirit through your wisdom and walk with the Lord on what this would look like. But let me give you just a few concepts or a couple concepts. One is your words, and then the second is your disposition towards your husband. So first, words. Honor him with what you say. Take every opportunity to thank him or encourage him. Pass up opportunities to talk bad about him. Make it a priority in your life to never speak poorly about your husband to another person. Just let people see the great things about him. And if you're struggling to find him, find him. Okay? You can find greatness in him. Encourage him. Make that a priority in your life. Guys, when my wife speaks well of me and encourages me, I don't know how to describe it. It's like something supernatural happens in me. Like I am, I'm so hyped up and I, I, feel, I feel like a, a better man and I want to be a better man when she is supporting me like that. I, I heard a quote uh, recently on people pleasing and how to avoid people pleasing. And uh, one of the things, uh, what he said was, uh, when I'm struggling with somebody critiquing me or being tempted towards people pleasing, I just think, man, God likes me and I like me. What's your problem? <laughs> I, I love it so much. It's a little cocky, but I still love it. Um, let me rephrase that quote or like what my experience with it has been. If God likes me and my wife likes me, what's your problem? Like I just, like I care what you guys think about me, 
But if Jessamine is like on my side and she's for me, I like don't really care because she's got me. She's got my back. And Jesus does too. And so I'm good, right? So your words matter. They matter deeply to your husband. Encourage him. Now your disposition. Let your disposition be to help him thrive in leadership and initiative in your lives and in your home. Defer to him when possible to help and support his vision for your lives and your family. Now, both headship and submission, both wives and and husbands, how they operate in marriage is to be offered up to the other person willingly as a gift to that person and a gift to God, not demanded by the other one. So you do not demand this of your spouse. You model it by self-sacrificial love, the way that Jesus first modeled it to us. And the primary way that you can demonstrate love to your spouse is one simple decision that you keep for the rest of your life, that you will never leave that person. I'm not giving like a teaching on on divorce or any of that, okay? I'm not saying there's never any circumstances. I, I don't actually think that's true. But I'm just saying on the whole, if we apply these, these principles, there wouldn't be a justified reason to leave. And the way you love them, the way you lower yourself is to stick with them regardless of what happens, for better or for worse, to stand by your covenant vows before God. Because love is not primarily a feeling, it's a choice. And there's beauty and safety in that. I've been married for over 10 years to my wife and I've never doubted our relationship and it's not because of my performance as a husband, it's because she promised me and I believe her because Jesus promised her and she's a representative of that promise from God. What is that promise from Jesus? Look at verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Listen, God's analogy for the relationship that he wants with you, with the church, is marriage. You might be thinking, that's literally what you've been saying this whole time. I know, but this is crazy. Marriage is not boss-employee It's not even like worker, co-worker. It's marriage. Think about the unity. Think about the intimacy. Think about the love and the self-sacrifice built within marriage. Jesus is saying that that is a model, a giant glowing arrow pointing towards the reality of his love. And in fact, he created it from the beginning for that purpose. He here quotes Genesis about marriage, but he says that isn't about marriage. It's about me. He built marriage into the instincts of human beings. He created this this rich institution to ingrain his love in the very fabric of how we function as people so that there would be this constant testament to the goodness of his love. Words weren't enough. He needed a symbol. He needed an illustration for his love. Guys, God proposed to us, his people, He got down on one knee and said, I want to have relationship with you forever. And I want to never leave you or forsake you. And the extravagant display of his love was the life and death of Jesus Christ. The most precious thing the earth has ever seen came to us as a proposal of covenantal love. 
And we were not worthy of that love and couldn't even handle that love. But look at verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We weren't qualified to marry him, and so he turned us into a marriable bride. He made us holy and without blemish, so that we could be with him, not just till death do us part, because death will never do us part forever. An eternity married to Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he wants to be united to us. We talked about last week how sex is a symbol of the mingling of souls. The, through the body, two souls being welded together and becoming one. That is a symbol of divine love as well. Jesus wants to become welded together with us where our souls become united with him and the two become one. That's called union with Christ. It's at the, the heart of the gospel. And that is the foundation of, you can love the, of how you can love the way that he just asks you to love in this text. There's this saying that hurting people hurt people. It's also true that loved people love people. And you are loved beyond your wildest imagining. So you now have the ability to love someone else the way that Christ loved you extravagantly. What if the Christian divorce rate went to zero? Like, like what if there was a competition down to benefit the other, not a competition up to demand your rights in marriage and in life? What if families were institutions of healing and wholeness not pain and brokenness. In other words, what if the kingdom of God came to earth in our church, in our marriages? Wouldn't our city want to know what had happened to us? Wouldn't our family and our friends be attracted to Christ by the love that we have for each other? We get to act in a play that is the drama of divine love. We get to demonstrate his love to the world for the glory of God by the way that we live with one another. Let's pray. Jesus, allow us to do that, to demonstrate your character to the world by our love. Heal broken marriages. Help spouses recommit to one another. Um, would we refuse to leave because you never left us? and you will never forsake us. And Jesus, I pray that the reality of your, your love would fall on this congregation. That the fact that you wanted relationship with us forever, that you offered a proposal of eternal life and union with you while we were enemies with you, before we had ever done anything for you, that you served us, that, that even though we're a broken bride, that that we're not what we should be, that you still want us and want relationship with us, that, that ridiculous, radical love, would, it, would the reality of that land on us and would we respond in, in worship and in faith with our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.